And welcome. You are listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, one of our wonderful community radio partners internationally or our podcast, which will be back to its extended format today. We have a lot to get to today. I have an absolutely packed house full of people. We are welcoming some new volunteers on this episode. There's been a very, very busy news week. We have all sorts of pipelines, pipe, uh, uh, pipelines, uh, court decisions, uh, global trade agreements, all sorts of things going on. It's a very busy week. So because of that, I would like to get right to our first interview as well. So we're going to get right down to business. Uh, we're going to be talking uh, to uh, Jeff Douglas from Renabac today. And if I'm not mistaken, I already have him on the line. Are you there, Jeff? Yes, I'm here, Darren. All right. Thank you so much for taking some time to join us today. We're going to be talking about uh, your business. So you are the uh, VP of sales for a company called Renobac, which is at renobac.com. And we were interested in talking to you because... Well, I mean, frankly, this to me, just to start right out of the gate, this sounds like one of those uh, businesses that was, uh, it's a great idea because it's obvious, but apparently nobody thought of it. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, you're, uh, you're quite right. And uh, it was, you know, back a couple of years ago when uh, uh, some, some great minds came together. And, uh, of course, the uh, a perfect business model is, uh, is finding a problem and, uh, more importantly, applying a solution. And, uh, you know, a lot of talk these days, especially following uh, the COP21 with uh, uh, climate change and uh, uh, greenhouse uh, gas emissions. And uh, and actually, that ties in really well with our story, because uh, rentalback.com uh, is uh, it's an online classified that's specifically targeted at the uh, construction and the renovation business. And what a lot of people don't understand is that uh, just here in Canada alone, we've got uh, over 25 million tons of solid waste uh, that's <clears throat> being... Uh, tipped into the uh, into our landfills uh, on the outskirts of town, and and out of that, uh, about thirty five percent of that comes from the construction and uh, and renovation business. We're uh, uh, we're we're trying to uh, trying to do something about that. Yeah, I see here in one of the uh, one of the stories I was looking at. That's twenty five million ton, tons of solid waste dumped into landfill. And one of the things that you talk about is that a lot of this isn't even uh, you know used. It's it's it, part of it is you know getting people to get out of this mindset of you know everything has to be new. But frankly, a whole bunch of this stuff is new. Well, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, we're uh, we try to drive awareness uh, through our uh, through mainstream media, uh, doing uh, presentations like this one. Thank you very much. And uh, and also through our social media and trying to make people aware that uh, all these uh, we've got to change uh, uh, the way that uh, that we've thought about things in the past. And, and we look at uh, but we look at our site and uh, and about fifty percent of the materials coming onto our site are new materials. Now these are either uh, uh, retailers that uh, that are viewing our site now as uh, as a liquidation site, so they can get rid of. Uh, just get rid of excess materials, overstock materials, uh, perhaps stale dated materials. But at the same time, we get contractors uh, uh, and builders that uh, they maybe have missized doors, missized windows, and, and unfortunately uh, for them, uh, it's 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 just easier to it's just easier to toss all of that into a bin and dump it on the outskirts of town. So, actually, uh, we do have uh, almost half of the material on our site is new material, and a lot of that stuff would have been destined to uh, to a landfill. So let's let's get into some specifics. What type of materials are we talking about? Are we doing like little uh, pieces here, or or you know entire houses? Or <laughs> give me some specifics on what we're talking about. Well, we can go all the way from uh, the steel barn that uh, a uh, a property owner down uh, down in Okotoks, down south of Calgary, uh, back a few months ago. He had a steel barn, five thousand square foot. Uh, the building was only about six feet, uh, six years old, 
and um, he uh, he didn't want to dump it. He said, you know, this is a brand new building. The, he was having it replaced with the, uh, a fairly new building, sorry. He was having it replaced with the uh, with the larger structure, and uh, the contractor that was uh, that was uh, putting in the new structure uh, just thought it was easiest to, to scrap the old building. And uh, he thought, no, there's got to be a better solution than that. And, I mean, aside from the fact that uh, you're tossing away something that's perfectly perfectly reusable, um, uh, there was the uh, there was the environmental impact as well, and he gave that a lot of thought. Uh, he'd actually tried some of the other uh, uh, classifieds, uh, posted it in the paper, and had no interest. And uh, he posted it on our site, and we were quite surprised uh, to see a barn <laughs> being posted on our building for free. <laughs> if you could take it away, you can have it. And uh, anyway, he posted it on there, and it was within it was about 24 hours it took to uh, to secure. Uh, a uh, an interested party, and they had to bring a team in to uh, naturally to take it down. Hmm. But uh, it goes all the way from that. Uh, we've got uh, all types of building materials, uh, kitchen products. Uh, unfortunately, when a lot of people do kitchen renovations, it's just easiest to or easier to throw away the uh, uh, the uh, the kitchen cabinets and uh, and countertops and sinks and uh, and all of that stuff just gets dumped. Hmm. And uh, so we make it really easy for them. If uh, if homeowners are doing a, uh, a home renovation, they can uh, ahead of time they can come in and post this stuff on our site. We have a very active audience that's looking for this stuff. Hmm. Uh, we had a woman recently. Uh, Global News did a story on her out here in Calgary, who um, uh, had redone her basement, and uh, she made it her mission to uh, uh, to shop on our site for all of the materials. And she did pick up a lot of new materials, but. Uh, uh, she figured that she saved about ten thousand dollars on the finishing of her basement by picking up all the all of the all of the, the necessary items off of our site. Yeah, and I read I saw that story and I thought that was very interesting. There, there was one other detail though that I think got my attention more than that number because you know it's saving you know saving ten thousand dollars it's it's a big number. It sounds very impressive, but in the back of my head I'm just sort of naturally skeptical. Uh, in the back of my head I was like, well, okay, uh, my brother for instance uh, works in uh, in the construction uh, business. Um, and you know, renovations are expensive. So, you know, who, who knows? I mean, if you're talking about a $2 million renovation, $10,000, maybe that's, you know, minimally, you know, just for people that, you know, really want to do their, their best, but maybe on a big scale, that's not really, no, no, that was over half of her cost. Yeah. That's really incredible. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that was a good story and we like to get a lot of mileage out of it, but that's not the only story that we have. We've got, uh, we get a lot of positive feedback, uh, and we measure the traffic going through the site. Uh, we get uh, we get comments coming back to us, uh, and 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 people are catching on. Now our story is primarily here in uh, in Alberta. Uh, we are based in Calgary. Um, and our story is catching on pretty quickly uh, across uh, across Alberta and now to the west out to Vancouver and the Lower Mainland. But uh, we've recently expanded our reach into Toronto and the GTA, and uh, and our story is picking up a lot of momentum there. And we're actually focusing our attention now. On your region, and uh, and you'll be hearing a lot more about us uh, over the next uh, over the next couple of months. So, Jeff, I, I don't want to take us uh, either of us too far outside of our expertise, but let's let's speculate a little bit on the psychology of this. So, there is there. I think you would agree that there's definitely um, a, a bit of an attitude that people are sort of preemptively biased against this type of behavior. We're we're to some degree maybe conditioned, you might say, that uh, that if you're getting something that that isn't sort of brand new out of the store, that, that there's there's sort of a inherent, inherent assumption that you're getting a, a worse product. Um, can you comment on the validity of the validity of the truth of that? So what maybe some sort of concessions somebody might have to make, uh, if any, by by using the types of materials off your site, and then also just the mentality behind it. Uh, well, that's uh, that's a good question, uh, Darren, and. Uh 
Uh, we, uh, getting back to what I said earlier about the COP21, we're all about trying to, we, we make all these attempts to, uh, uh, to change people's, uh, uh, thoughts on, on, uh, on, on reusing materials. And, uh, the, the materials that we see, uh, on our site, again, uh, I used, uh, uh, used, uh, cabinets and, uh, and used countertops. There really is nothing wrong with those. Those are perfectly, uh, perfectly uh, reusable, and we have uh, people coming on our site and giving these materials away for free, because even they understand that uh, uh, tipping these into the landfills, uh, aside from the environmental impact, that there's uh, a cost associated with that because it has to be uh, transported to uh, to the site, and uh, and it has to be paid to uh, to be dumped. So, uh, anyway, getting back to your question, the uh, the I think more and more people are becoming. Uh, uh, receptive to the idea of uh, at least considering uh, reusing materials uh, that have uh, previously been used. You find that a lot of these older material, materials are, are better quality than what you might pick up at a box store. And uh, and, and people are, are starting to catch on and, uh, and recognize that, hey, you know what, if I can save myself uh, 50 or 60 percent or more uh, on this uh, on this home renovation product, I should, or on this home uh, renovation, I should have uh, uh, I should reconsider, uh, <laughs> you know, going out and uh, and paying top uh, top retail for something new that probably uh, you know may not last as long. And uh, uh, anyway, we find that uh, you know more and more people are 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 looking at uh, are, are looking at the, the environmental and the social issues, uh, uh, and uh, and becoming much more receptive to to uh, uh, to at least considering. And when they come to our site, uh, they see these new materials, or they see used materials that uh, that are comparable to new, and uh, and they're getting them at considerable savings. Yeah, and that's kind of the angle that I'm really interested in because you know there's no way to put all quote unquote environmentalists into one box. There's there's a wide range of opinion on all issues for people that uh, identify as you know being concerned about those types of issues. But I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you know. Um, I, th- I think there's really something to be said, and we try here on this program to you know promote the values and the ethics um, and uh, the, the the kind of practicality of it as as well. But I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of the time, what we're talking about is that a huge portion, a gigantic proportion, potentially over half of the portion of environmental value, really here is efficiency. And efficiency, in almost all cases, directly translates to a dollar savings. Um, and if really what it takes to get people to start thinking about you know reusing materials and being more efficient, and being more eco friendly, is that we show them how much money they can save. I'm okay with that personally. I don't know about you. No, oh, no, that's uh, well. Our slogan uh, when you go on the site, you'll see our slogan is "Save Green," and uh, it, it has a dual meaning. Um, here in uh, Alberta, I think uh, well, the, <clears throat> things have gone a little wanky here with uh, oil tipping down below twenty nine bucks or below thirty dollars. And uh, you, you know, here the emphasis is on saving money, but uh, when we look out on the West Coast. Um, the emphasis is on uh, is actually on saving uh, saving the environment and and they've got some very aggressive zero net waste uh, mandates uh very supportive of the uh, the circular economy and uh uh Vancouver uh, is striving to be the greenest city in the world by the year 2020 they actually called us up and asked us if we would uh, extend our reach out to their uh, out to their neighborhood because uh, they they want all of the resources available to to help them to uh, to achieve that mandate so whether you're shaving green, uh, whether you're shaving money, or whether you're shaving the environment, uh, you're actually you're actually being a environmentally responsible by saving money by by shopping on uh, on a site like Renoback.com. 
All right. So if you're just tuning in now, we're talking to Jeff Douglas, who's the VP of sales there at Renoback.com. And it's about uh, saving money and saving the environment at the same time by, by simply not wasting the absolutely abhorrent amount of waste that goes in uh, that is usually associated with construction. Of course, any major urban uh, uh, city right now in Canada, but I mean, just generally speaking, there's tons and tons of construction going on. So this is both a huge problem and a huge opportunity. Uh, We are unfortunately, however, really tight on time today. So I I only have time to ask you one more question, Jeff. Uh, And uh, and I always like to sort of end on a bit of a 10,000 feet sort of level. So I mean, your business here is 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 doing well, and it's achieving sort of both of those sort of dual goals, as you said there, uh, at the same time. Can I ask you to comment on um, you know sort of business trends and attitudes here? Is this are we witnessing here, and do you feel that you are sort of part of a a new wave of sort of rethinking the types of business opportunities that are that are good? Is this indicative of a change in sort of attitude in generally, uh, or do you think that maybe that uh, maybe we still got some work to do? But you just sort of capitalized on on one of these good ideas. Is is this beginning of a trend or not? Basically, um, that's a good question, Darren. We uh, actually, I just got back from Toronto and uh, I had a meeting there with a. Uh, <laughs> I had several meetings there. We've had a dynamic uh, response from uh, uh, from contractors uh, uh, in the. Uh, uh, that specialize in the in the renovation uh, space in the uh, in the city of Toronto and the GTA, and they all <clears throat> look at our model and they all listen to our story and they all say, you know what, this is uh, this is uh, this is the trend that is uh, that's here to stay, and it's actually being mandated by a lot of municipalities now across the country. So <clears throat> contractors, home builders, renovators, uh, they're being mandated to to minimize their waste, and uh, and again they they're. They've got to look for uh, alternatives. So uh, people are being forced to uh, to make these uh, uh, adjustments to uh, to their old business models, and 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 they're looking at uh, they're looking for solutions, and and that's why they're so receptive and uh, and grateful that uh, you know Renoback is uh, is here. If you want to buy a car, if you want to buy concert tickets, don't come to Renoback because that's not what we do. <laughs> uh, we only we only address a very specific market, and uh, people are coming to our site uh, and they're looking for these materials because they're embracing change. And uh, if we don't embrace and change, uh, and and and, and uh, adapt to to new ideas, um, get rid of that old uh, those old uh, uh, habits of ours. Uh, you know, all this uh, these issues about climate change. It's it, it's not going to go away it's only going to uh, uh it's only going to get worse so we're hoping to make uh, make a difference that's uh, our our mandate that drives us uh our legacy is that uh, you know we want to make the the world just a a little better place and uh make life a little more pleasant for everybody because we don't have another world to go to this is it i think that's a great place to end because i couldn't agree more thank you so much for your time jeff douglas thank you darren all right. So if anyone was interested as well, uh, uh, back is spelled exactly how it sounds, but you can also get that off our, our website. We'll have some links there. Uh, and Jeff, being a sales guy, I'm sure we'll have uh, every interest in talking to you. If you have any further questions for him, so don't hesitate to reach out to him as well. Uh, we're going to go to our first music break now here in just a minute. We'll come back uh, and get some uh, very busy news uh, discussion underway here on the Green Majority at CIUT 89.5 FM or one of our wonderful partners or on the podcast. You can learn more if you need to at greenmajority.com. But we'll be right back. Pushing through the market square, so many mothers sighing. 
had just come over. We had five years left to cry. News guy wept and told us Earth was really dying. Cried so much his face was wet, and I knew he was not lying. I heard telephones, opera house, favorite melodies. I saw boys, toys, electric kinds of TVs. My brain felt like a warehouse; it had no room to spare. I had to cram so many things to store everything in there, and all the bad skinny people, and all the tall short people. Green majority.、Uh, I also have the pleasure today. We're introducing a lot of new people these days,、um, and right now I have the pleasure to introduce our new tech, Alex. Is it Ricci? Yeah, Alex、right. Ricci is joining us today.、Uh, first go,、um, doing a great job so far. Thanks.、Uh, and I was wondering if you could tell us what we were just listening to. Yeah, that was、uh, a cover of a David Bowie song, Five Years,、uh, by a Canadian artist, Mo Kenny. We're trying to keep the CRTC happy.、Um, so yeah, that was that was Mo Kenny,、um, an artist out of Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, covering David Bowie, Five Years. All right. So、uh, we're coming back to some news. It's been a very, very、um, busy news week、uh, so far, and、uh, one of the things I got confused about a little bit、uh, when I was even reading through it was there was so much sort of court decision news this week、um, that I that I fully got lost on which one was which. So I had to review everything this morning just to keep it all、um, straight. But I'm hoping that、uh, Stefan, you had、uh, you decided a, a way to go through this that was going to make sense of it for me. So why don't why don't I leave to you on this? For sure. Uh, so basically, what we're looking at is a sort of the importance of precedent,、mm. uh, legal precedent specifically,、uh, at least on today's show.、Uh, and we're going to go through a couple different. We're going to flow through all the different legal precedents that may have been may have been set and may be set soon.、Mm. Uh, beginning with the the, the most important one、uh, in my argument,、uh, which is that the BC Supreme Court has ruled that the province quote has breached the honor of the crown by failing to consult. Uh, with the Gitga at Gitga Gitga at <laughs> all right,、uh, and other coastal First Nations on the Enbridge Northern Gateway Pipeline,、uh, 
Uh, and so that obviously is huge news. Uh, it comes on the heels, actually, of BC also come formally, formally coming out and actually opposing the pipeline as a, as a direct uh, opposition, uh, which is a little bit... I don't know, hypocritical, given that they also waived their right to, to run their own, uh, you know, <laughs> own environmental assessment. Uh, it, someone uh, in late for the for the name the article is quoted as saying basically they're like, yeah, the federal government, uh, like we we oppose this, but we'll let the federal government decide rather than actually you know just making the decision you know for the people of BC. But uh, well, and, and furthermore, and sorry, I don't know if you're mm-hmm. getting to this, but the, the, the furthermore on that was the the idea too that they were uh, in addition to that were also basically saying uh, we might appeal this. We're still against it, but we might appeal our right to. Uh, the right we've been given to make our own decision. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, lots happen. But but what's important here actually is uh, is first to understand what failure to consult means. Uh, and and MA uh, can speak to that. Sure. So I, th- I think one additional sort of case note on this, just to sort of establish uh, why the ruling went the way it did, was in Ju- 2010, uh, the BC Liberals signed what is called an equiv- equivalency agreement, which is what effectively handed over um, these responsibilities to the federal government and the decision-making power that goes with environmental assessments and the duty to consult First Nations. What's really interesting is I think it's, it's fascinating to see what's coming out of BC as a province because the landmark case which set the duty to consult in our Canadian legal framework actually happened in 2014. It was a case where the Chilcotin uh, First Nation took um, the government, the BC government, to the Supreme Court of Canada for logging rights that they had given away 20 years ago. And what came out of that case was that based on Aboriginal title, even Aboriginal title that is still in the preceding, ba- the preceding process and not even finalized is a basis that the government does have the duty to consult First Nations. So that was established as a legal precedent. And we're seeing it now being used as the basis for other really high profile cases that have very um, significant environmental implications, like this case, and also like another case that is before the court in Ontario around line nine. Yeah, so let's uh, so let's move to that case to some extent. Uh, that you know, as we're moving forward on, on sort of the importance of precedence, uh, which is because again, another failure consult case, and, and really what's, what what needs to be informed is that precedent actually hosts a very uh, is super super important, uh, like uh, especially in legal terms. The in reality, our constitution uh, doesn't actually have the word environment in it. As a, as a fun fact, uh, and doesn't actually, in, in nowhere does it does it actually say which where the environment goes and different sort of things, or environmental production should be held, uh, and what and the way that was really decided actually was through precedent, uh, and so case 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 case, but I cannot sort of overstate the importance uh, of setting a strong precedent and the power of what a precedent can do to shape the future. Uh, so if this sort of failure consult pre- precedent is, is sort of carried on, especially with the second case and, and as we go forward, you're going to see it a lot and a lot harder for, for people to sort of trample on uh, First Nations rights. Uh, so Emma, you also looked a bit at the Line 9 case as well. Yes. Yeah, so there's also a legal battle over Line 9, which, as I think people are familiar, runs between Sarnia, Ontario and Montreal. And so this case involves the Chippewas of the Thames First Nation against Enbridge. Uh, the National Energy Board, the notorious NEB, (laughs) and the Attorney General of Canada. And it is also being uh, put forward on the same basis, that there was a failure, uh, a duty to consult First Nations. 
as as we know that uh, line nine has been given the go-ahead um, to do what it's proposed so this is a, a legal challenge it's one of several legal challenges to that and I think cases like this are really making uh, both private industry and environmentalists alike stand up and pay attention now I'd like to think that environmentalists already have uh, indigenous rights on the radar I want to make that assumption but we know that that hasn't always been the case historically unfortunately and what we're seeing is that not only uh, is the duty to consult something that should be there in its own right uh, as the right of First Nations, but it's also a very strong legal tool around environmental protection. And as we've seen in the last couple of years, uh, cases that involve uh, private industry possibly contravening or doing things that are damaging to the natural world, that are da damaging to the communities that run through pipelines, the strongest challenges against these have come actually from First Nations uh, groups. So we are definitely seeing, I'd say, a positive trend in how these are being interpreted by the courts. Yeah. I, I want to just stick in sort of two comment, general comments on, on this as well. One of them is, has to do with the, the First Nations aspect, which is that, um, you know, from the point of view of somebody that's uh, not, quote unquote, not on our side, as far as understanding that there, these are things that shouldn't proceed because of the inevitable, you know, buying it, uh, you're, you're, setting, you're, you're setting infrastructure for things that we, we shouldn't be using. And by building them, it sort of means that you're locking in, blah, blah, blah. But from the other point of view, say if you're you know either unaware or you have a different assessment of those facts, and I'm trying to be as generous as possible, <laughs> uh, in that it, it could be easily be seen to you know I could see somebody on that side of the either the information side or the ideology side saying you know kind of taking the view of like oh those troublesome First Nations groups look no, nobody else is against it it's just always First Nation groups that are in, in court but you have to understand one really important thing which is that it's it seems to be a somewhat of a, a technicality to some degree but because of all of the legal finan uh, finangling and the amount of influence that these corporations have is that uh, yeah it's really they're the only people in this country that really have a legal opportunity to do anything about it. And if anybody else could, they would be. Um, and I don't think that's, um, I think that's an indictment of how much, um, you know, it might be too far to say uh, corruption, but how much influence, let's say, that industry has that we don't really have any other recourse. Um, and I think that's it's an indication of another problem, but it does complicate the matter when you're trying to talk to a wider audience that maybe doesn't have, you know, a comprehensive view of it. Um, the other thing I wanted to point out really quickly before we went was uh, just sort of looking at it from the general public's point of view is that if you go and you read any one of these individual stories, and as usual, they will all be posted on the website, you'll go and you could, you'll see sort of the side that the First Nations groups are saying, and you'll take this the side that the you know some quotes from some government people and you'll take some some quotes from the oil companies and and if the, you only read it that one article if you only read any one of them what you'll see is you know everybody seems to be making an argument well we weren't consulted and the oil companies are like okay well we didn't consult you but this is good and you know this is an annoying you know technicality you're making us do but at the end of the day this is good for everybody and stop getting in our way and one of the things that they like to say all the time though is that, you know you'll see these words you know world-class safety and unprecedented you know investment in public health station all these things but what you do if, if you read just even three of them even if you read just the three that we're going to post today you'll see that three different people from two different companies about three different pipelines all say that that pipeline has the world's you know best safety and security measures and all these upgraded features and all this stuff it can't possibly be true like it's just by mutually exclusive you can't have two things that are the best so like there's just so much sort of rhetoric on behind besides the oil companies and what really starts to come out of it after you read a few of these things in in succession 
is that really what we're looking at here is just absolute indignation of an industry that is used to absolutely having its way. And for the first time ever, there is getting some support for the people that are saying, no, not on my watch. And and just the indignation of having somebody stand up to them is is just so impressive. But what I'm concerned about is that people that don't have that full story are, are really going to take a different view of this. Um, and I mean, A, that's why we do this show. But B, that's also, I think, why this, you know, why people who are informed get these points of view on these issues. And then, you know, you go to the general public or you go to an election and and that's not how it sorts out. And it's because if you only look at one tiny slice of this, it's really confusing what's actually true. Yeah, and I, I, I want to get back to uh, the legal precedent piece because uh, we have a third story that also ties in. But before that, I want to make one quick comment on the first thing you mentioned about, about, about First Nations being the ones in courts, which is specifically that the only reason they're going to court is because they're the only people who had the rights trampled, so they have to. You know, this is literally a question of whether or not we can build something through their land, and the only responsibility we have is the duty to consult. If Trump Tower was in the middle, if you had to knock down Trump Tower to build Energy East and Northern Gateway, this wouldn't be going to court. It never would have got there because there wouldn't be a conversation. Uh, you know, time and time again, treaty rights and, and, and First Nations uh, uh, control over their own land is sort of only half counts to to our government and, and, and to business interests. Whereas if this was, you know, if this was a very rich corporation on this land and they were like, no, I'm here, this there wouldn't be a conversation about duty to consult because there wouldn't be a conversation at all. You just yeah. find a different way. I, I don't think we're disagreeing, but just no, to, yeah, to yeah. clarify the, for the audience what I meant by that was that, you know, it's because that the idea of being able to go to the NDB and present evidence that this is dooming us to catastrophic runaway climate change that's going to impoverish all future generations after this, we don't do about something is not something that we're allowed to take to court. It's been prevented from being presented. So we're, these are the right. options we're left with. Sure. I just want to and be clear for the really audience what I meant. Point, I think here is that there's an absolute lack of confidence, and that's probably a massive understatement <laughs> in the National Energy Board. I mean, there there are widespread calls to reform this institution, which is actually supposed to be moderating all of this and regulating all of this in the inter- in public interest, and that does include, I would argue, um, indigenous rights. Indigenous mm-hmm. people are part of the public, and they have legally established rights. But we've seen this institution be completely ineffectual, and now this institution is actually being taken to court. So what does that say about its effectiveness in this regard? So I think this is also a very strong signal and a very positive one that that, there needs to be massive reform, uh, maybe even more extreme measures when it comes to the NEB. Yeah, Uh, and the the last thing before we move on to the next legal precedent conversation is just that the NEB has outwardly stated that it would not accept climate change as an understanding of how to deal with pipelines, uh, which if you're going to, which is the reason why no one has any faith in it. Because they're basically being like, you know, that thing that everyone cares about, we're going to ignore it when we can make this con- consideration. Uh, but to the third legal precedent uh, that – so this is kind of a funny story in which two days ago we were like – there was a possibility of legal precedent being set and then yesterday uh, this not. But the story is still interesting and I want to get to it, uh, which was that there is – more and more protesters are beginning to use what they call the necessity defense uh, against uh, when they when they come up and stop um, different types of fossil fuel extraction or fossil transportation measures. Uh, specifically, the, the the story that came out uh, earlier this week was one of the something called the Delta Five, who basically built this kind of tripod uh, over a train station, a, a train tracks uh, to block crude oil. 
uh, and and because they were stopped. And and and, and the argument basically is that uh, the blockade was necessary to prevent harm to greater good. Uh, and the term goes greater good is you know not having climate change, runaway climate change. Uh, and it's uh, and it's an argument that's actually success been successfully used in the UK. Uh, but this was go- this was going to be the first time it was going to be used in the United States. It went to jury. Uh, and there's two points about that I want to point. First is it turned out two days later the judge actually at the very end last second said actually don't let them use that defense jury don't consider necessity defense as a, as a, as acceptable as acceptable so never mind this is not the first first use of that uh, going to a jury but the other thing is that a year ago uh, Darren you and I talking uh, about before and we remember this conversation we had about. Uh, in actually, in, in our least watched video ever, uh, when I went back. Did to you family, check it? I checked, actually, <laughs> six people watched this video. Out the world uh, four plus you and me. Exactly, exactly. It. Thank you, four people. Uh, <laughs> but it was it was another use of the necessity defense within the United States. But the reason why it didn't set any precedent is because it was actually it never went to court. A a governor general, uh, I believe, uh, came out and basically said, "You know what?" Uh, I'm going to accept this argument and, and and drop the charges. He he, not so much drop the charges. He actually, um, he just freed them. He uh, he was like, you know, he was like, I I, I accept this argument, uh, and so and so you're absolved. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is interesting because given the fact that there's actually a piece of it, you know, this never it, uh, it's kind of good and bad because if it actually had gone to court and set a precedent, we'd be in a lot better place than we are right now. Uh, but at the same time, it is proof that there are people out there who are actually willing to take this mm-hmm. uh, and pay attention to it. Uh, so again, we, po- we posted that other article about it. It was actually a blockade. It was a lo- it, was, it was a couple of guys in a lobster boat actually in front of a yeah. gigantic coal mine. You know what? We'll we'll post the old video on it. Maybe we can get the watches up to ten. Oh, that'd be so great yeah. if, four, if four more people. It make it make all our efforts a year year and a half ago really valuable yeah <laughs> uh, but that's uh, but i think uh, i don't think it's an accident as well like i uh, obviously i nobody knows or i we can't know what's in the mind of that judge but i i my opinion would be was that it's very likely uh that this judge also took that into account and said i i this is right in this case but i'm not interested in setting the precedent that's going to cause a chain reaction of legal hysteria for the next 10 years trying to sort out what this precedent means so i think it's the best for all parties involved that we don't make that we that we solve this in a fair way that doesn't set precedent i think that was intentional but that's just my opinion not opening the floodgates is what Hmm. it sounds like that's right yeah well, yeah, because that's the thing. If there's ever actually a – if there's a strong precedent set, if ever is actually a strong precedent set for the necessity defense uh, can, be, can be successfully used uh, against uh, energy infrastructure, especially fossil fuel infrastructure, it would, it would, ca- it, it would cause massive disruption. I, I would say that that would be arguably as world-changing as the internet, and that's a strong <laughs> statement. But, I mean, really, I mean, if you think about, like, every person that cares about this issue now essentially be giving a, getting a get-out-of-jail-free card to go and disrupt an industry they don't like, I, like I, even, I don't even think that's necessarily a good thing. I would think it would have to be under very specific confines, because just a carte blanche to, you know, you can prove that they're doing something that could potentially or very likely could harm future generations gives you a get out of jail free card to basically do what you want. I, I think that's a terrible idea. You know, you'd need to you'd need to very quickly ramp up some sort of well. You need to switch to a clean energy future very very quickly. Yeah, uh, it, but yeah, that's that's what I mean. I mean, the implications of that would be enormous. I yeah. think you'd have to demonstrate without a, 
with you know without a doubt that you had followed every other recourse available mm. to you yeah. mm. um and that this was really the only recourse left it was necessary it was maybe necessary. say <laughs> um yes uh, well I, and, and uh, as a, w- a way to tie this uh, that conversation actually back to uh to sort of to, to Canada and to the pipelines i was having you and i were actually sitting uh sitting on CSI a couple days ago and discussing uh, the Line 9 protests that are going on where people sort of show up and just turn off the valve mm-hmm. uh, and how it seems as if there's been a, a somewhat of an exodus of the major uh, uh, the major sort of environmental nonprofits switching their interests into en- Energy East and Northern Gateway and sort of have accepted that Line 9's you know, basically done, and that we've we sort of lost that battle, move on to some extent, uh, and yet there are these sort of pockets of people a who are just sort of shutting down, uh, you know, valves. Uh, it sounds as if they actually show up, tell the people who run line nine they're going to shut it down, tell them to do it man from their end, so it's much safer. They do it, and they don't actually have to turn it, and then they turn it off, so to ensure that you know no actual oil is spilled. But they're still doing something that's dramatic, and that's the kind of thing that you know they're arrested and they need it then. What are they going to do? Probably make the necessity of defense. And then that connects directly to the sort of fact that we don't have this precedent uh, to protect treaty rights, which is currently going through the courts uh, in Ontario as well. Mm. So we're, we're getting close to where we could take a break. We've got a couple of other things. Do you guys want to leave the, the NAFTA? Because I want to get to the NAFTA angle. Do you want to do that quickly now or should we do Let's that? Let's do that after back? the break. I think that merits some... Uh Thoughtful consideration. All right, yeah, I think, I think I, I, I'm a little hyper today. I gotta be honest with you. So, uh, yeah, let's all take a break. Let's do another uh, quick music break here. Uh, Alex, do you want to tell us ahead of time this time what we're going to listen to? Yes, I do. <laughs> um, this is Merchant Copy uh, with a song called Patriotic, and it's actually uh, one of our host MA's uh, brothers. Yes, band. that's right. Yeah, I'm proud of that too. <laughs> all right, so let's hear it. Believe. Blessed to be hearing all that we've been given, but that doesn't mean we can't examine how we live in. We the North, yes, we of red and white, we of question mark, we of narrow sight. So how do you grow in a vast sweeping cold? Sit still within our lives or dare to be bold? In a wasteland we litter, discarded all our tools. With stolen land and viper gifts and residential schools. The Chinaman's pickaxe, my grandfather's head tax. Revolving laundry cycle, Japanese internment camps. No wait, relax and just watch the hockey game. Tell the children of Afghanistan that they should do the same. National identity in the state of being. Not quite European, more like America's ceiling. The hat on the helmet of the man with the gun. Destabilize your country, cripple all your sons. Are you patriotic or are you idiotic? Are you patriotic or are you idiotic? Are you patriotic or are you idiotic? How we proceed, it's any way you got it. Are you patriotic or are you idiotic? Are you patriotic or are you idiotic? Are you patriotic or are you idiotic? How we proceed, it's any way you got it. And once again, you ask us to stand for thee. So we should be able to ask exactly what are we? Land the back bacon with flow and maple syrup. Stampede cowboy with tar sand upon his stirrup. Four thinkers to change in the best place to live. But it's the life we choose based on what we give. The strength of our society, the strength of our diversity. And again, I ask, who are we still divided as can be? We got to a point and thought that we arrived there. Yet the emperor resides upon his parliamentary chair. The manifest a dollar destiny, financial disparity. Once again, felled the ancient trees of tamagami. 
We can go there or not, but it's not for us to decide To what you accept from where you do reside To slowly take away our freedom in the name of terror But this fear will not abate, so in this we seem to error Era, era, this the new era No need to fall to fear, just be more aware Cause this the new era, yes this the new era No need to fall to fear, just be more aware Are you patriotic or are you idiotic? Are you patriotic or are you idiotic? Are you patriotic or are All you All right, idiotic? that's a good question. That's, that's, that's something I think about every morning, actually. Um, shout out to Emmy's What's your brother's name? It's Enlai. Enlai. Thanks for the song. That was great. Uh, so also, if you uh, have a friend or family member or also a musician and would like to have your music considered, feel free to send it to us. That sounded silly. I was actually being serious. Yeah, yeah. That, I don't know that was I, a real thing. I don't real, know why I made suggestion. that sound like We that. support homegrown talent here. And, there we you know, do. The re- I just want to say the reason why I, I like that song and I recommended that it be played on the show is that it's a new year. Uh, Canada's starting out with a new government. Our parliamentarians are going to go sit in the House at the end of January. So I'd just like Canada to do some reflecting on what kind of nation we want to be this year and f- going forward from there. Awesome. So in case you're just tuning in or, or if you dozed off there for a minute, you are listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. You could be listening perhaps on one of our internationally syndicated community radio partners who we love, by the way. They're very awesome. They're and lovely. we very appreciate them. They're great. Uh, and then also our podcast audience, which will be treated once again to a after show if you're on the podcast uh, today. We'll be doing a brief wrap up because uh, as usual, we always run out of time with things to talk about. But on that note, we'll also get right back to it. So, uh, Emma, you're going to lead us in a little bit of a conversation where it's sort of a follow-up comment on uh, on a discussion we had last week which is about trade agreements and specifically NAFTA so uh, we- yeah we're picking up the trade agreement thread which I think we are going to be continuing to do throughout this year I what I think will be really interesting is when we start to see the legal cases around the duty to consult intersect with the legal challenges around our trade agreements. So I say Canada, look out for that. We're seeing progressive decisions being taken with regards to uh, First Nations legal cases, but we're also seeing our government sign up to increasingly more restrictive trade agreements. So those two things are going to come into collision. That's what I predict. Anyways, onward with this one case that we wanted to just briefly discuss, because it does highlight some potential important uh, legal aspects to the ongoing sort of litigation around trade agreements is that there's this company that was formerly known as Abitibi Bowwater, now uh, renamed as Resolute Forest Products, which has been quite successful, actually, in uh, posing legal challenges to the Canadian government. They've already had a settlement of about $130 million, as I understand it. In this case, they're taking the Nova Scotian government to court. In a nutshell, what this case is about is that they opened up a sawmill in Quebec, and they had to close it down, citing losses. And they are attributing a lot of those losses to the fact that another sawmill, uh, which employs about a 1,000 people in Cape Breton, is subsidized by the, the Nova Scotia government. And so this is their basis for, for suing uh, the Canadian government under NAFTA. And what this case highlights is two important things. One, that there's a loophole in NAFTA where companies that have sort of most of their resources, most of their holdings in Canada can actually register as an American company and then come in uh, through the back door, so to speak, and use the investor state dispute resolution uh, settlement mechanism in NAFTA to sue the Canadian government under under the guise, I would say, of being a U.S. company. The other part of this is that um, we haven't seen a lot of challenges being based on subsidies. That is a tool that provincial governments and other levels of government are able to use to, you know, uh, 
incentivize local growth and industry, employment, that kind of thing. But this case could potentially, if it does uh, go in the favor of this company, really create a chill on provincial governments using subsidies to uh, motivate local development and employment, as is the case here. So thought that was worth flagging up. We were talking about the legal challenge to the United States uh, posed by TransCanada under NAFTA last week. However, there is a difference here in track record. Apparently, Canada is the quote-unquote, developed country that's been sued the most under trade agreements, and the United States has yet to lose one. And we've had five environmental-related challenges under NAFTA to date, so I just wanted to flag that up. Mm. And the, I, I, I apologize, I, I missed if you said this, I, I didn't hear you say uh, give a, a number, but with the, just to give a sort of context mm. on the amount of money we're talking about, these are usually in the over $100 million type right, range. Yeah. So it's not, we're not talking about pocket change here. And, and I also want to change. Yeah, it's, it's several pockets worth of <laughs> uh, And the other thing I wanted to point out as well, because, um, you know, yes, as, as you said, the, the term, the terminology that's used in, a, in the legal context is investor state uh, dispute resolution, something, blah, blah, blah. Um, just to sort of put a fine point on this, what that means in common language, that means your laws cost me money. Or your laws could cost me money in the future, and it, it's what it does is it it's a pathway by which we defer sovereignty to profit, which, in some contexts, you could make an argument for. But when we're talking about multinational corporations, in one case, being able to play countries off the other, or a, as as Ma just perfectly outlined, a company going and getting a mailbox in the U.S. and then using it as a backdoor, essentially just as a scheme to rip money out of the system. It's a scheme. It's a scam. And this is actually uh, this is just ripping up to the be taxpayers. a good basis to make profit, isn't it? Yeah, it's, you can you know, get a hundred million plus as a settlement for for industry that was unsuccessful. I mean, these are these are uh, you know industries often that are claiming bankruptcy. Hmm. This is actually a really good profit making scheme. Yeah. And I, I just want, I, we want to move on because we're we're obviously tight on time, as I keep saying. But one other thing I want to draw people's attention to that I think they may be familiar with is that there's an entire cottage industry. I don't know if that's the right word. I just like hmm. that expression. <laughs> there's an entire cottage industry around. Um, uh, suing people for uh, 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 copyrights. So, for instance, so there's entire companies that are worth millions of dollars that all they do is essentially uh, copy other people's stuff that they didn't properly uh, copyright and then sue the people who actually made it for copyright infringement because they were the first person to do it. Sorry, it's a patent law. And there's giant holes in the U.S. and uh, 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 John Oliver did a great piece on this. But there's an entire industry based around abusing um, patent laws. This is the exact tape type thing. This is not legitimate business practices or or a fair way to settle reasonable disputes. What we're talking about is people gaming the system and ripping off taxpayers. And everybody, it doesn't matter where you sit on the political spectrum, should be upset about that. Uh, but we'll leave it there, I think, for now. Stefan. Yeah. Uh, so a little on a little lighter note. Uh, and actually, I, 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 not only that, a, a note that everyone does agree on this as a fun fact. Ooh. Uh, because, uh, so I want to flag, so, so about a news about, story about the new Ontario Environment Commissioner. Uh, and don't worry, it's not really Ontario-centric. It's more just so about some of the ideas she's putting forward. Uh, it's a very interesting article in the National Post in which they call her radical, uh, which, of course, anyone who has ideas that we'd agree with probably called radical. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, it was interesting. While being called radical, she was still the consensus choice of all three parties. So the 
Conservative Party of Ontario, which had Tim Hudak as their previous leader, who wanted to cut literally 100,000 jobs from public service, uh, was also like, yes, Diane Sachs is the person I want being Ontario's environmental commissioner, uh, which I think should speak to uh, should should speak to sort of her credentials, I'd argue. Uh, you know, she was a 40-year uh, career as environmental lawyer. But what interested me in the article... Uh, some of her ideas are really things that you know we've been people things forever. Uh, a great quote from her is: "Fossil fuel subsidies do not reduce inequality; they increase inequality because most of the money goes to the better off." Mm-hmm. And like you know, uh, and that's an interesting point given the fact that pe- the most common argument against ending fossil fuel subsidies uh, is this idea that well, then how are the people who really really need fa- like you know gas and stuff going to be able to afford it? We're actually reducing the price, and, and we've done a whole video about how that doesn't actually work uh, mm-hmm. and all this sort of stuff. But but the short version is the real answer was you. Take, it's not it's it's helping some people who need help and it's disproportionately helping people who don't so we take it away and then we can always it just you, just because you take something away doesn't mean you can't add something we can take it away and then add something that's more specifically geared to make sure that just the people that actually need help get it well, well <laughs> it's and, not that complicated well and not only that it's it's also often the drop in the but you, you're giving it to the people producing it rather than the people you know it's not a direct subsidy we're not right. giving people money to it and it's, and any sort of subsidy of that nature that's not sort of targeted is going to be inherently biased towards people who buy more of it uh which are obviously are, are richer people uh but the art but this, the quote i want to bring which is really just a thing to think about we can talk about it if you like but as far as i just want to throw this thought out there because uh, i just love it so much uh, is that she's quoted later on in the article saying land use planning and development is really Ontario's oil sands. Uh, it's our biggest factor driving greenhouse gas emissions. It's tied very strongly to important parts of the economy and it has long-lasting important impacts. And I think the concept of just connecting land use, and, and land use, of course, is a, is, is a super hot topic in Ontario, given the fact that we have some of the most fertile agricultural land in the entire world. And oh, also, we did. It's now been paved over. Well, exactly. A uh, good percentage <laughs> of it has now been paved over. Uh, and, but the... So the decision behind that of of how we sort and then within the green belt is now is is coming up for review and we're going to actually look for expansion of green belt stuff, stuff like that and then the idea of just sort of reducing urban sprawl generally uh, you know because anyone who's sort of anyone who's all urban planners have now basically accepted that urban sprawl a doesn't make anyone happier uh, you know people might think they want to live two hours away in a one bungalow house but those four hour drive there and back commutes uh, do not generally lead to happy lives mm-hmm. uh, and and that density is sort of where we need to move heading uh, and in the infilling is really where it's where where we need to understand uh, and protecting sort of our rich agricultural land outside is so important and i think this conversation that that's the way she frames it as ontario's oil sands uh is is fascinating because a it is an economic driver and it's a massive business we need to actually we need to actually fight and, and or engage with maybe fight is the wrong word but engage with and discuss how best it can sort of be used to to, to support a our society but also be not over carbon emissions um but at the same time it also is something that we need to control uh and and, and keep it from keep it in check to some extent and to make sure that it's actually we're actually thinking of for the future not just sort of you know the current way we do things is that we you know small towns are funding improvements to the intern core by expanding and that's this you know we're, it's this constant expansion model we see almost everywhere in society that is now expanded also to the fact that you know small towns are now have the land footprint of just of unreasonable size because everyone wants the one bungalow houses. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, lots of people want to live outside the city, but they still, they don't want to give up any of the things they get from living in a city. It's the, I want to have it all sort of mentality. And, and we, you know, at some level, we just have to get used to the fact that just because you can technically pay for something doesn't mean you can have it. There mm-hmm. have to be limits. Yeah. Uh, we have to have some confines. Uh, and so one of the things that I thought was really interesting on this, and uh, we'll go to MA for comment on this as well in a second, but 
was, you know, I, there was a certainly a unique thing because uh, I haven't heard a lot of people put the infrastructure uh, sort of context in that. That was a very uh, headline grabby statement. But the sentiment is not a new one. I think what's really new here is that somebody who's been just been put in a position where they actually have an ability directly out to influence the solution of this problem, saying something like that is definitely new. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I was sort of, sort of like, did Hudak not like know what did <laughs> like, was yeah. he just like really sleepy that morning? Like, I, I don't know. I want I feel like I'd like to give him more of a benefit of the doubt, but I've just been trained really well not to, um, I don't know. But I mean, if she's, uh, she's coming in, um, you know, with some really, with a really specific, and this is, this is one of the things that heartened me. She's coming in with a really specific to-do list. Yeah. And it's not about, you know, sort of generalities around, we need to sort of incorporate environmental values and blah, 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 blah. Uh, it's, oh, great. Here's a hit list and here's what I'm going to do. And by the way, here's a bunch of ways we can solve it. And here's why the solutions that have been presented in the past suck. Hmm. Um, so watch me. Yeah. Uh, and I love it. <laughs> I so love it. So she's great. Emma, do you have anything you want to add on that? Only, I couldn't have said it better, Darren, but only that, you know, we've been talking about not just being critical, but being solution focused. And if she can bring that, that will be wonderful. I mean, a lot of these issues relate to having affordable housing near transit, near public transit. And those are very big challenges that are related to to land use, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. The transit conversation uh, is is also highlighted in the article, the the difficulty matching transit with agriculture. You know, you need, you need, you you know, we need expansive go transit to, to ensure or the high speed, you know, some sort of rail transit to get people where they need to go. But if you're, you know, plowing up a bunch of arable land, you have some difficulties. And there's always that sort of where can we find that balance? Life's a balance, people. Life's yeah. a balance. Well, and it's, it comes back to this thing like it's and I and I, I guess it's just because, you know, people like us are more trained to think at a global level. But it's it's not a difference of opinion. It's that you have to now do it. We have global mm-hmm. level impact. So if you're not thinking globally to address problems, then you're just being an idiot like it's that's just wrong that's that's not an objective opinion or that's not a subjective opinion thing you're just doing it wrong but like one of the things people say is you know well it's like oh well so where are we going to go go food be like no no you don't understand there's a there's a global food system we'll just we'll have um people you know in africa grow our food or or wildflowers or whatever else we need like oh well how is their land well it's the you know it's because of the climate change conditions and the pre-existing conditions whatever it's not nearly as good as is our soil like really okay so you're building buildings in the best possible place to to grow food and you're growing food in the best possible place in the, in not just the, not necessarily the best possible place, but in a place that desperately needs infrastructure, you're doing it wrong. Like, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. And then we, you know, we get something about, Oh, well, you don't understand money. Well, no, I think I do. I'm just pointing out that there's a problem with the way things are done. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. Uh, but on that note, a very similar note, uh, one of the things so we have, um, Again, we haven't done this in a couple of weeks because the holidays was just sort of a bit of a wild woo. Um, <laughs> Speak but, for yourself, Darren. Yeah, yeah we were hard at work <laughs> Wild <here>. woo. <laughs> yeah, well, for me. <laughs> it was a very confusing time. So um, so we're getting back into our, our, our bonus show con- uh, content afterwards. So right after the live broadcast here, we'll do a little bit additional. If you want to hear some of that commentary as well, we'll be welcoming uh, one of our new volunteers as well, Sabina, who will be joining us in the after show, who will uh, at some point uh, soon, hopefully, will be coming onto the live show. But for now, we'll be joining us uh, on today's bonus show. Uh, but one of the other features that I haven't mentioned in a while, just because of, we've sort of been a little discombobulated to really actually deal with it, frankly, um, is the uh, vote for the news. So one of the vote for the news stories that was selected from this week uh, was, I was very happy because this is the one I wanted to talk about too, which was uh, Germany's superhighway for bikes or the uh, bike bond, I believe it's being called. Uh, and what's really cool about it is that it's um, connecting 10 cities. So this isn't just a, uh, a bike lane. 
This is a designated bike superhighway that allows for inter not just intercity travel between you know t- two places. This is like they're zigzagging the country. And when I saw this, I got really excited. Not just because you, bike lanes are great and some sort of ideological default position of anything that has to do with bikes is good. It's because immediately I was like, man, if they had you know anybody can you know you can drive places. That's a thing you can do. Um, it is possible to drive to Montreal, for instance. Montreal is a fun city. I could drive there. I don't drive, but I could go with a friend that could drive there. I could get in a train. That would be a thing if I really wanted to go. But, you know, like it's, it's a lot of trouble. It's a lot of time. It's a big commitment to go up there. And, you know, do, we don't exactly – none of us here make a lot of money. So it's, you know, it's big as it cost benefit of the, my time and the resources required and whatever. If I could bike to Montreal, this would be like a thing I would I would probably do once a month. Just because the ability to actually safely bike there on a designated bike superhighway would be so cool that that would make me want to do it. And I think so the angle here that really wasn't laid out in the article, but the, the reason why I would make the case for something like this is that if you had the ability to have designated bike superhighways to go to places maybe that have something super neat but – Maybe it's cost benefit of the way to get there that now there's a super cool, not just the ability to get there, but a super cool way to get there that this could actually be really big for tourism, for trade, for travel, uh, bringing people to places where they may not have other come because you're providing a way to actually get there. Um, am, I, am I overreacting? Am I too excited about this? Well, I, I, I think it's really it speaks to – a couple of my friends have, have tried different ways of biking. You, know, there's, you can bike across Canada or you can bike uh, to you know, another place. My, my brother wants to bike to Barrie. Uh, and the conversation always ends up being there's stretches that are just terribly dangerous. Uh, and there's stretches where you're basically on the highway uh, and, and no one wants to bike on a highway. Uh, it, it, but there are people who would love to, you know, there are long distance bike trails that people would love to take, but it always ends up that at some point you're in a very, very dangerous space. And, and it, it, very quickly, um, the cycle to uh, a bike advocacy group here has a thing called minimum grid, uh, within a city, which basically points out that really to get places in the city and have good uh, cycling infrastructure, you have, the point isn't just having just sort of long stretches of, uh, of, of bike paths. It has to be connected to something. Mm. And it's always, the parts that stop you are these really small parts that are just terribly dangerous. You know, it's like, if there's one intersection that's really dangerous, but you have to use it to get somewhere, you're not going anywhere. And I think something like this is is ensuring you won't hit those small parts, mm-hmm. and that it's actually true infrastructure that can be used as a transportation tool rather than as a hobby. And that's the biggest difference we're trying to make, right? Is that you know, is when everyone says Copenhagen or Amsterdam or or where biking isn't a hobby, everyone does it. Well, they weren't Copenhagen and Amsterdam weren't Copenhagen and Amsterdam twenty years ago. There was an intentional action to make them bike friendly in a place where that's the case. And stuff like this is that sort of you know is that move towards making cycling a real type of transportation. Yeah. And like, I mean, like, so give an example. So former, uh, the, well, not former, the original host of the show, the, the person responsible for putting it on Jordan Popank, mm-hmm. um, d- right after he left the show, before he went down to the United States to finish his education, uh, famously, uh, somewhat famously because he actually got news coverage for it and whatnot, actually biked from one end of Canada to the other. And he came back and he told a bunch of stories about it. And one of the stories he told, he had some harrowing tales, of course, as you would. Uh, and one of the things he was talking about, of course, was biking down the highway and, uh, being chased by a dog. And he think, oh, that was funny. No, no, this was a farmer's dog and he was actually really concerned for his safety. This dog wanted to rip his throat out as far as he could tell. And he had to outrace it. And the dog chased him for, for upwards of a kilometer. Um, and you know, so we're, we're talking about is the, the ability to do things. But I mean, if there was, if there was actually the ability to, uh, bike to BC, I would do it. 
and wow, we ran out of time real fast. So uh, if you're here listening on the podcast or you would like to, uh, we're going to be right back in just a moment for a few more minutes to wrap up. But we are out of time. Thanks for listening to the Green Majority this week on CIUT and all our community partners. Take care. Have a good green week. And we'll see you all real soon. Green Majority Program is also brought to you in part by some of our awesome members. Keep in mind, if you would like to support the climate cartoons and some of our other radio activities, you can support us by becoming a member. So uh, go to the homepage. There's a button that says, how can you help? There's a number of things you can do that are free. And then you can also become a member. Yeah, we'll talk to you in a second. Woo. So we're coming into the uh, the bonus, sh- uh, bonus show, the first bonus show after uh, the holidays. Uh, the first thing we're going to do, uh, of course, is we tease that we have some new volunteers. So putting on the spot, Sabina is joining us. Just introduce yourself and maybe say a couple sentences about yourself, anything you like. All right. So my name is Sabina, and at the moment I'm uh, a master's student at UFT taking uh, sustainability management. And I have an undergraduate degree in chemistry, so I'm extremely interested in environmentalism and science environmentalist news and science and how they combine together. All right. And Sabina is going to be joining us over the next while and hopefully getting involved in the live show as soon as possible. Uh, also, our tech is sitting with us here today as well. Alex Ricci, would you like to uh, do the same thing? Just introduce yourself. Yeah. Hi, I'm Alex Ricci. Um, I got into uh, working with uh, Green Majority through the CSI where I met Stefan. And uh, my interest is is definitely more in the tech side, but also uh, I'm very much interested in environmental issues, and I kind of want to be here uh, and absorb all the information that you guys have. Uh, I'm a musician, and I like to have environmental issues sort of inform my songwriting, and and also like when I'm on stage, be able to uh, to like share uh, my concern for the environment with people I'm performing to. We should uh, we should have one of Alex's ba- band songs play. Actually, yes, I was assuming that you know that will be coming soon coming soon yeah <laughs> right so just uh quickly like what we like to do with the after show is kind of get to anything we didn't get to um any news articles or any comments that we didn't get to one one of the things that i was interested to know and uh, anyone will jump in but again i'm going to put you on the spot again sabina uh as well we just sort of so w- without even sort of getting into the super heavy details uh about it one of the things that we were talking about today of course was um this sort of deluge of legal challenges and so without you know the details aside um it seems to be that the there is sort of a bit of a tide change in that you know there are sort of i I feel like we've had a bunch of what could be called wins recently um and part of this has to do with sort of the science that's involved in the fact that you know the facts are being considered now that Harper is gone. Um, but to what degree do you think, you know, because I'm, I'm now over 30, <laughs> um, to what degree do you think that this is that just the, the sort of younger generation is sort of more aware and that the, the, as the young people that are younger than us are growing up are now, n- now not just sort of young people in school talking and maybe doing school protests, but are now actually in the workforce and in the thing. Uh, do you, does this among your peers seem like people generally are really taking this or does this to you still seem like something that there's sort of like a niche of people that are interested in this? Right. I, well, I'm going to begin with the first part when you said that just because Harper, Harper now isn't in the, isn't in power anymore. I remember when it was in second year, when he actually closed down all of the research 
uh, up in up in the north and all of the scientific voice was kind of muted and I was in second year chemistry and all my professors they were freaking out and they were they really hated it and we all thought that we were never going to have any job coming out of just a pure research scientist because I'm not an engineer so coming out from a pure theoretical scientific in the lab mixing chemicals we thought there's there's no way there's no jobs and then now Trudeau is coming in and he has a minister of science which was a huge win for the scientific community as well as right now I'm in the masters of sustainability management so when you're saying about the people coming in that are like the newer generation that's very interested this program is only two years old so if a program like this can exist and is very new and people are applying 200 people at a time then that means that a lot more younger people in the younger generation is very interested in environmentalist news and environment and the environment overall as they should be. So I think, yeah, for sure. Science um, science news is helpful, but at the same time, I think there is that conscious shift in the new generation. All right, thank you for letting me put you completely on the spot. Well done. Um, so I have a, I, you, you, you mentioned something which I was, before the show, I was mentioning to M.A. that I had, uh, that a very similar, so last week, M.A. walked in, we had a whole bunch of the land, and it was like, this one thing really drove me insane, or really, really angered me. Uh, and I had the exact same thing earlier today, uh, and you literally said about eight words that are in the title of the article that drove me, like, that, 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 that made me incredibly angry. Uh, so I'm going to use this opportunity to complain about it. <laughs> uh, okay. It is an article by the Financial Post, which, already is probably annoying um <laughs> not that i have things with it against the financial post you know but here we go uh and the article is called student protesters become someone's employee how to ensure they don't become your headache and uh and what's funny about it is uh is if you scroll down the five things they suggest are very very normal hr things the five things they suggest as things like you know con uh conduct a careful vetting set probationary period you know put a plate in place a code of conduct all very normal HR policies to have. Mm-hmm. However, it's introduced with perhaps some of the most despicable gr- white dude grandstanding I've experienced, I- I've seen in the last little while. I'm just going to read the opening paragraph and explain why I hate it so much, and then I will stop talking. But <laughs> it's these are the first like three lines. Student protests at U.S. universities last year, in which even university presidents fell in their wake, should provide employers everywhere pause. In these cases, students successfully had, had faculty removed for being insufficiently responsive to their grievances and for failing to make them feel safe on campus. Although they have taken a pause, an alleged trigger is never far away. The, what he's referring to were a process, series of protests, specifically, most obviously in Missouri, in which a group of uh, the black student body were basically being consistently targeted by real racism, including dropping cotton balls in front of a black communi- communities uh, cultural center, uh, racist graffiti, a white dude refusing to leave a protest and then dropping the N-word as he left about how angry they were getting, uh, and people driving in pickup trucks around yelling racial slurs at black students. And and shockingly, you know, the student population that felt that made them feel unsafe and that the university president wasn't doing wasn't doing enough. This is a side note that the university president also hit one of them with his car. It seems like a very slight like it, that that seems like an altercation. They were blocking his way, and then I think he just he ran into one of them, but he still ran into the student. And yet this guy is somehow using this as a reason as to why you should be worried that people. And then and the, the way he acts as if oh all of these sort of things are they're trying to feel safe. Oh how could they not feel safe when 
it's like you as a fundamental person in a position of power have to – you've completely failed to understand what it could be like for any people to experiencing any of this. But you've decided on your own that you get to decide that all of these people don't deserve to feel safe and that they are just you know they're just not being not being strong enough in your opinion um it's so dis- disgusting it's just so angering uh, and I hate it so 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 much. I couldn't agree more. I'm gonna, but I'm gonna throw in an, another aspect to this. Yes, um, because I think there is something to this, and I think it, it's a positive thing. And that once I make my statement, then I'm gonna hand it over to our resident young, our two resident young people that are with <laughs> us in the room. So I think that growing up under the shadow of negative government. Let's let's use the Canadian example. Has actually raised a very formidable generation of young people, who have been who have learned to think very critically about the actions of government, and that can only be a good thing. So yes, look out by all means. Look out. These, this is the next generation. I just want to share a very very brief uh, story. So w- I was sitting with a group of young climate activists right before the election. And I, I said, guys, you know, we really need to think about what do we do just in case if the current government continues to be the current government. And one young activist who was exactly half my age at that time, um, who I'm very impressed by, I should say, he said, you know, this government has been in place most of my life. If they get reelected again, the next day I'm going to get back to work. So fortunately, that that did not happen. But we've had a generation grow up under a government that was very anti-progressive values, and we've learned really to protest a lot. So a generation that's gotten really effective at protesting. But we also need to be a generation, I would argue, that builds stuff and knows how to engage when there's openings. So I don't know if any of our resident young people in the room want to comment on that. How do you, how do you feel about that? <laughs> no. um, so to talk about your first point when you were saying that a lot of young people uh, grew uh, really grew up under this uh, not very progressive um, regime, I guess. Uh, I would say that even though that was true, Canada has always had this kind of um, this uh, reputation for being a very progressive country. Even though our laws didn't really say that, we've kind of been able to have that freedom to say whatever we want, even though, like, for example, like all of the research centers uh, were cut in funding and all of these kinds of things were going on kind of behind the scenes. We were given that freedom and that kind of thought that, yeah, we are progressive and you can do whatever you want. So I think that's what grew that, that spirit of, yeah, we can protest against all of these once, once those came into the news and when people were seeing like what was really going on in government. But before that, we, we were saying, yeah, Canada's amazing. We're so much better than America. And then when you really look at what was really going on, then that's when people started to come into, you know, they, they started thinking about what's really going on and they really wanted to, you know, start protesting and to get to work. And yeah, so I think that's why I think we, we've always had that thinking that we are progressive, even though we might not necessarily happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think we probably should wrap it up. We're getting a little tight on time today. Uh, we'll give uh, everybody an opportunity to talk a little more, I think, next week. But for now, I just want to let you know, thank you for uh, tuning back into the podcast version. Uh, and to let you know, I always like to leave some secret information. It's like the value of the podcast <laughs> right, yes. for the people, the ultra cool people that listen to the <laughs> podcast version. Uh, some little inside information. So just as a quick tease, uh, I got an email the other day that Stefan and I had a little bit of fun with. Uh, and we haven't decided yet whether or not we're going to put this on air. Maybe this will be a bonus show thing. I don't know. We haven't decided 
decided yet. I want to bring it on air. I want to bring it on air, air next week. Yeah. Okay. So we're, <laughs> we're uh, you know, details will be and how that's going to be done will still yeah. be thing. But the point I wanted to make today, and the, the the point was like you'll notice that I do this throughout the regular show as well. Was always sort of was trying back up and and sort of say you know from a general non you know set mind or or from an established point of view just your regular you know joe or Susie canadian perspective that doesn't have time to sort of dig deep into this and is not so inclined to dig deep into these issues how it might seem for them the reason that that's important is that if we're not at least acknowledging that message and acknowledging how it's completely legitimate and they're not stupid or evil for coming to the to conclusions that different from ours it's not our perspective that that but that there's a reason why we disagree we know what that reason is and we'd like to talk to them about that reason and the reason i wanted to mention that was a if we're not doing that there's zero point to doing this show because i i don't you know, spend the amount of time. And I don't think anyone else that spends the amount of time that they do to put into the show um, really thinks it's that important to go around patting people that agree with us on the back. At least I don't feel that way. And the second point of view is that if you're not at least trying to sort of have that conversation, there's no point. The first thing was that the types of people that we get email from are are ex- generally extremely assertive and extremely condescending. And it will nothing will please me more than to pull the rug out from these sort of person because the, it's so arrogant and so abusive and they have no freaking idea what they're talking about. So look forward to that. <laughs> Stefan and I are looking forward to it and we hope you are too. So thanks for tuning into the extended version. See you all real soon. Have a good green week, folks. 